0: Ladies and gentlemen, we've got good news and bad news. Bad news, every knee shall bow is taking a break this summer. Our last episode until this fall will air on June 1st. But that brings us to the good news, which is that great things are coming for every knee shall bow this fall. We're getting a refresh and working on great content for y'all. We love you guys and we want to take care of you this summer. So please sign up for our email newsletter to receive updates on the exciting changes that are coming to every knee shall bow. You will also get links to the episode playlist, throwback content, and more. To sign up for the newsletter, text EKSB to 33777. By signing up to our email list, you'll get updates so you don't miss our first episode in the fall. Thank you for listening to EKSB, and keep us in your prayers. Woo! Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. My name is Mike Gomer Gormley, and I am joined today by Dave All-Luxury Van Vickel. How you doing, Dave? I'm okay. All luxury. All luxury all the time. No, yeah, not, that's not me. That's not me, my friend. No, no, me, we have but... a special guest today. We got a special guest today. Yeah.
1: Dave, why don't you introduce him? Yeah, I'm cool with it. All right. Uh, we have Dr. Roger Nutt on uh, the provost of Ave Maria University. Uh, co-director of the Aquinas Center for Theological Renewal, but most importantly, my
2: brother-in-law, actually.
1: So, uh,
2: welcome to the show, Roger. How are you doing? I am well. Thank you, Dave. It's great to be on the show. And after that intro, I think we need to make a, an official uh uh, welcome or introduction to your mom and dad, my mother and father-in-law, who I know are big fans of the show. <laughs> I, d- I doubt they'll listen. I doubt it. <laughs> well, maybe because you're on.
1: Maybe There it is. Yeah, There it is.
2: I don't know, Dave. Your siblings seem to think that you're kind of the favorite one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. The, Roger, uh, you're down in Ave Maria right now. So what's going on? I am sitting in my office uh, right now.
1: Yeah. Nice. And what's, uh, so you're, I don't even know what a provost is to be honest with
2: you. I feel weird, but that's your job. What, what, what do you, what do you do? That shows how much you've been following my career, right? Dave? <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, basically the provost is the chief academic officer uh-huh. uh, of a university. Okay. Yeah. I, so I, I oversee all the academic uh, programs here, but my first love as you know, is theology and I still retain my, Uh, My appointment in the theology department here, too. Okay.
0: How did did you personally get into the academic side of theology?
2: I converted to Catholicism my senior year uh, as an undergraduate, and I was really drawn to the faith from the catholic intellectual tradition i was raised uh, in a very low church reformed side of protestantism i was a baptist and as an undergraduate i got exposed to saint thomas and saint augustine and the church's teaching on the blessed sacrament and key doctrines and i was so moved by the richness of the catholic faith which i had not been exposed to as a baptist it really inspired me to want to learn more and more about it so i uh after i graduated i got my master's at franciscan and even grew to love uh, learning about the faith even more and knew that i wanted to not only learn about it but share it so i went on from there to get my doctorate
1: oh that's awesome Th- then he he heard about me and linked himself to our family and i really i really <laughs> brought him to where he is today yeah. uh, no i mean roger we've been having these
2: uh theological discussion since i was in sixth grade maybe probably sixth grade right around then yeah. yeah you might have been in seventh grade when i've when your sister first brought me home but right around that time
1: yeah i remember uh they were always very cordial until one day you tried to uh try to pull rank on me because i was listening to temple of the dog remember and you were like you shouldn't be listening to that pull rank on you <laughs> <laughs> anyways uh you're on today because we want to talk about your new book um which i'm super excited about i i, I don't, can't remember when exactly you sent it to me to take a look at but i was excited from the moment i i read it uh title is to die is gain a theological reintroduction to the sacrament of anointing of the sick um what what's the history behind this why did you decide to write it
2: there are a lot of strands to that question. The first strand is that here at Ave Maria, my division of labor in the Christology department was to teach sacraments and Christology for years and years and years since I joined the faculty here in 2006. And I actually did my dissertation on the third part of St. Thomas's Summa. So I've loved uh, the link between Christ and the sacraments for a long time. And every year when I taught sacraments here and we would go over anointing of the sick, I was struck by how profound the gospel message within the theology of that sacrament is and how little it seems to be appreciated or known by the faithful. So we all love the theology of baptism as the first and most necessary sacrament. And we love the romance of Uh, matrimony. And I think, you know, the Eucharist rightfully so gets the most attention in sacramental theology. And I just kept uh, coming away with thinking that we needed to do a better job of sharing with the faithful, how important anointing of the sick is within our journey towards eternal life. So that's one strand is that just teaching and reflecting each year and Coming away thinking there's a little gap in the literature, quite frankly, on this sacrament was was one thread. And then another thread is that I journeyed with two close friends through their dying process. One was a childhood friend. Uh, His dad was our little league coach. He got cancer in his late 30s or early 40s. He had two young children. He was not a believer. We had kind of lost touch and we we got in touch again when he became sick. And I was able to journey with him. And I really watched him struggle as an unbeliever with, um, you know, with all the challenges that come with you know, facing the end of your life. And then here at Ave Maria, the founder of our theology department, Father Matthew Lamb, who you met once or twice, Dave, passed away in his 80th year. And I journeyed with him. And the very last thing that he said to me after the doctors told us, you know, there's really nothing more we can do uh, and so on. And I said, you know, I said, did you hear that father? And do you understand what that means? And the very last thing he said to me was that he was ready to meet Jesus. And I was really struck by how profound it is to journey from this life to the next in uh, total uh, trust in the Lord and how beautiful, how beautiful it was to be there with Father Lamb in his last days. Uh, And then, of course, the pandemic hit, the pandemic hit after I started writing the book. And uh, so all of those things really kind of were were agitating within me and and made me want to get this message out to to a wider audience, because I think we need to hear and reflect on uh, what the gospel teaches us about how to journey towards death.
1: Yeah, I think I remember you and I talking about this Gomer. I don't know if it was on the podcast or just personally, but the I I got this copy. I remember during the whole COVID thing, and I I remember reading it and being so scandalized by the fact that we're yeah, I mean priests were blocked from so many old folks' homes, from so many places, hospices, and things like that. And it, you know, I I I honestly, this book really. Drastically changed my thinking on, on the anointing of the sick. And, um, it gave me such an appreciation for it. And I think part of it was the fact that, I mean, it was so timely during COVID.
0: Yeah. We had a friend who, uh, lost his wife while he was on a ventilator, uh, suffering from COVID. She had, you know, um, terminal illness and she was nearing. And then he goes off, um, and they, this is in the early time of, of COVID and he was put on a ventilator a little bit too soon. And so he was on it for like 45 days. And when he kind of gets off it and all this and he's more, um, you know, in the clear and state, you know, cause you couldn't even receive visitors and all this stuff that uh, he found out that his wife had passed. And um, in that of not being able to be with someone that you, in their last moments that you've spent 40 years with, you know, it was so horrible, but, part of the consolation that our faith brings was she had the anointing of the sick that he was there for many times. And then she had uh, her viaticum, you know, she had her bread for the journey and received last rites in the church. And, and um, it's just, it's amazing that uh, sacramentally, when we can't be with someone in their presence, we can always meet them in Christ in the Eucharist. We can always meet them in the sacraments. And most importantly, what I've seen helping, Seeing funerals happen here at a mega church, you know, we have, sometimes we have four funerals a week and you see the difference between people who don't practice and people who do practice people who have almost no one show up at their funeral and no one know what a funeral is for. And to me, it just breaks my heart. Like it's the same thing with weddings. It's like, you don't know why we have a nuptial mass. You just think it's about the wedding couple. And it's like, no, it's about the Lord and worshiping the Lord with your life for the wedding and um, for the funeral. And and it's a beautiful consolation that our faith gives that I don't understand why as a culture, we are so hell bent on being resourceless for deaths and bereavement.
1: Yeah. Uh, one, one question I want to ask you, Roger, I mean, it seems like w- one of the things, that, I mean, I, I'm embarrassed to almost say like, you know, I've worked for the church for 20 years and it's like, I I kind of didn't realize how little anointing of the sick had to do with bodily, like health. Like I, I kind of thought it was a, it was both and sort of a thing. And I, and I feel like it was even presented to me that way on, on, on several occasions, but uh, I know several priests have told me like, well, you know, the, the church has really tried to expand its use, that it needs to be used more and more. And uh, you make the argument in this book that that's not at all true.
2: That's right. I am taking a, I guess, for lack of a better term, a minority position in the book. And it's a position that I think is the right position vis-a-vis the tr- teaching of the church as it stands today and our our tradition, but that position is that anointing of the sick is primarily to help us die well and in union with the Lord and not to preserve our earthly existence. And I think you're exactly right, Dave. Since the time of the council, the administration of this sacrament has been uh, expanded to Instances that don't pertain to grave illness, and I think that's created a false expectation in the mindset of of the faithful, and it's a situ- created a situation in which the purpose that the Lord gave to the sacrament is, is, is very much is, is very much lost. And the, tr- the tragedy is that of course, there are many miracles in the church. The Holy father just canonized 10 new uh, saints and every one of those is attached to the miraculous. So the spirit is very much alive and well and active, but in terms of what we should hope for as followers of Christ's, the truth is our home is in heaven and the object of hope is not for us to stay here forever but to uh, be united with Christ for all eternity and that's really why he gave us this sacrament it's an extension of that special ministry that he shared with so many sick and suffering during his own life is now made present to us in and through this this uh sacrament. So it's the way that Christ continues to minister to us when we are most vulnerable due to serious illness uh, or, or old age. But I think the the hope for miracles on the one hand, coupled with the enormous progress in medical technology, the fact that almost anything can be cured these days and often is cured, which is great, has uh reshaped how we view full healing in Christ. The traditional understanding of full healing is that it is realized at the time of bodily resurrection. But um, now because of the great technological progress that we've seen, we have conflated eschatological healing and bodily resurrection with medicinal cures And I think that really uh, compromises how we view this sacrament.
0: Mm. I think it's another instance of our fear of death or collective fear of death where it's like, well, it's not really about preparing people to die. You know, it's anointing. Are you sick? You know, like, let's back it up. And it's like, yeah, but it has to be grave. Like there's a graveness because tending to the grave, uh, there's a graveness involved that we have to take for real. And when we throw, this is the thing that I am constantly coming back to when it comes to the liturgy. I came up with this phrase, the iron law of vague sentimentality, uh, which is like governs how we celebrate the mass and all this. stuff. was like, well, is it vaguely sentimental? Then it belongs in the liturgy. And it's like, well, the liturgy is the prayer of the son to the father that we get to participate in. Maybe not so much uh, turning it into like how it makes me feel as an individual and stuff like that. And I've, I've found that um, there are certain, certain groups can distort the sacraments in weird and different ways. And one of them was like um, uh, there was a church that would do prayer teams. And they would have prayer teams, like normal prayer teams. Okay, we're going to pray for this and pray for that. But then they would do an anointing of a sick, abbreviated ritual at the beginning of the prayer teams. So you were really there for prayer teams. That was the whole emphasis. But every person that passed through, regardless of... The, the measure of the anointing, received the anointing of the sick, right? And so you see the, the priest would quickly do the anointing and do the abbreviated, you know, <laughs> bare minimum. And then they would go and to receive prayer teams. And I'm like, this is great. We should have prayer teams. We should have the anointing of the sick. But maybe, maybe not so much uh, collapsing the two so that no one really knows
2: what's more important. Yeah, you're exactly right, Mike. And yes, I quote yes, a document. Yes, you heard and- it
0: here. Dave never says that. Thank you.
2: Go on. (laughs) Okay. Let me repeat. You are exactly right. (laughs) So much so there, I I quote a document in the book uh, along these lines. It was released by the congregation for the doctrine of the faith in the year 2000 that affirms the importance of non-sacramental healing ministry in the church, but says explicitly that it should never be conflated or confused with uh, the liturgical life of the church, especially in relation to the sacrament of anointing of the sick. So there there's actually a formal directive by the church that says that these types of things should be um, separated from a temporal standpoint. Like you don't have one leading into the other, like you just described because it really does confuse uh, the faithful and perhaps instill a false expectation um, in, in their mind. And also the, the, the reverse is if people receive sacraments who aren't really eligible to receive them, whether it's anointing of the sick or whether it's communion with some of the controversies that we see today, the result is that they could think they're receiving graces and making spiritual progress when they're not. And that's very, that, that's incredibly detrimental to the progress of, of the faithful as well.
1: Yeah. That was one of the parts in the book that, um, yeah, as, as I was reading it, I was like, oh man, he's going to get hammered for this. But then the understanding came about for, through further reading, you know, one of the rules is you have to be of the, uh, age of conscience or age of, uh, consent, right. Or what do we call it? Right. Age Basically
2: of past first communion, you know, right.
1: age. Right. And, uh, and you make the comment, you make the the point like, you know, or someone who has like a, a mental disability, like might not be able to receive the sacrament if they don't understand it. And at, when you're thinking like, well, that that's crazy. How could you tell this family like of a, of a baby that's, you know, has cancer or something like that. But then when you realize that this sacrament is not about, it's, it's about assisting us in our journey at, at the time, like, you know, when we need it the most, right. This, this food for the journey to, to make our final transition into, you know, the, well, the particular judgment, right. To see God, that's a scary time. And you even see it like in the lives of the saints. Like, you know, that, that was like an obsession for me one year was reading about like the death stories of saints, how, how what trials they went through it's like thank god we have this and it kind of makes you understand it more but it's it's jarring when you first hear it you know that there are people who are not eligible for it
2: yeah and it's very unpopular and i should say that the latin rite of the catholic church in particular is is unique in in this teaching okay. the or- orthodox christians for example uh administer this sacrament very widely To children, and it's something that the Latin Church has been criticized for. But I think there's a wisdom to what the Latin Church does, and we often go around apologizing for the Latin Church and lauding Orthodox Christians and Eastern Rite Christians for maintaining, you know, fidelity. But there's a certain wisdom in some of our Latin practices that reveal important truths about the faith. And I think this is is one of those instances, to your point, to say that a three-year-old to have to tell parents that a uh, three-year-old who has to have open heart surgery, for example, can't receive the sacrament seems uh, very uh, uncharitable and callous. But if you understand that uh, the weaknesses that we have as a result of our sinful habits are what this sacrament works on to prevent us from regressing into doubt or despair, uh, as a result of the, the sin, the effects of sin that remain within us. Then it becomes clearer that, uh, someone who either cannot sin or who has not reached the age of reason doesn't need, uh, preservation from the kinds of, uh, serious vices that you can face at the end of life uh, that someone who can and has sin does need.
0: I think Dave's mom would disagree when he was three <laughs> years old, he was engaged in <laughs> objective mortal sin. It, and it was it very serious. <laughs> <sin>. And <laughs> I knew what I was doing. And it was habitual and it was awful. Yeah. Um, right. I think there's a lot. Okay. So I, at first I, I was on the other boat, right? Um, but you swayed me with that last thing. Cause I wanted to be like, Well, why would you tell a baby that you're not going to anoint them? Why would you tell parents that you're not going to anoint a baby? But the idea is it's the same reason why you're not going to hear that baby's confession, right? It's like because they have no need of it. You're not going to give them a sacrament that they have no need for, not just that they're in. uh, Sorry, you're ineligible, but like you're ineligible because your child is a living temple of the Holy Spirit with the indwelling of the Trinity since their baptism, just like they don't need the sacrament of confession um, and just like they are, in another sense, ineligible for the sacrament of holy matrimony, like there's there's an importance who can receive this. And I think today in our consumeristic culture that we apply to everything about the church, people will get really fussy pants about that and be like, how dare you? But it, the idea is at its core, well, she doesn't need it. What she might need, though, is a prayers and blessings from the great treasury of the church. And when, um, you know, like, yeah, I have a lot of instances of this in my own life fairly recently where priests have come. And um, so, for instance, my wife uh, was about to die from a miscarriage or a ectopic pregnancy and all this stuff. And he was and, and the priest, he prayed dozens of prayers. And one of them was a blessing for mothers And a healing of her body, like he prayed all this stuff outside of just the sacrament of anointing of the sick. And it makes me go going back to that um, prayer service. Like if we're going to have prayer teams, you should have the priest and the deacon there and they should be drawing on the treasury of blessings. Like I I know for a fact that, you know, people go and they don't just say, well, you know, I have lower back pain. I need healing from it. I might have to uh, have surgery on it or whatever. But there's also people who come to prayer teams for, like, my marriage is falling apart. And, you know, there are a wide range of things. And the church has prayers and intercessions and stuff like that that could incorporate this instead of just trying to co-op the sacrament, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And um, you're on a roll today, Mike.
0: Oh, sorry, Dave. You might be the strongest man in Pittsburgh, but I'm exactly right. Hometown
2: refs, hometown refs. (laughs) That's what this is. You know, and I should say that the church does have a rule with all the sacraments that, you know, if there's a if there's a gray area or a reasonable doubt, the minister should not withhold mm. the sacrament. So if you have a diocese that introduces first communion at the age of eight, and you have a five or six year old who's gravely ill, but you know clearly has e- re- reached the age of reason, yeah. obviously that child should be you know should be given um, the sacrament. So we don't want to regress into a kind of categorical application of, of these things. Priests need to have the virtue of prudence and, and make Mm. judgments. The bigger issue is just the theological point that this sacrament protects us from losing our eternal salvation when we are most weak and vulnerable at the end of our uh, earthly, at the end of our earthly journey due to sickness or old age. You know, one of the, one of the reasons
1: I I wanted to get you on, uh, the podcast is uh, so many of our listeners are professional Catholics, priests, uh, DREs, you know, and I, like, I had very little knowledge of anointing of the sick before this book, and I I have a sense that most people in who work in the church do, which is a shame because most people like most priests are doing more funerals than they are baptisms. Right. I mean, that's the way it is now in, in, in America right now in 2022. And I was at a meeting probably, I don't know, seven years ago in a diocese that shall remain nameless. But it, there were, there were probably a hundred people there, all degreed professional Catholics. And they were talking about uh, kind of like the vocations crisis. And one of the things that they, somebody brought up um, to discuss was, well, why don't they let deacons uh, do anointing of the sick? Because that's such a big part of the priest. And, I I just sat back and watched and listened to this discussion and for 45 minutes it went on like this is a viable option because not a single person brought up the fact that it involves absolution of your sins. I mean, this is a major catechetical lack on our part is understanding this this sacrament, you know.
2: Yeah, the diaconate does not perform sacerdotal ministry. Right. It performs certain ministries like the proclamation of the word of God that are derived from Christ, which is why deacons need to be ordained or drawn into the order of Christ's ministry. But they are not incorporated into his sacerdotal ministry. So the effects of this sacrament, uh, the the. um Healing of the soul, the graces that are poured out. And this sacrament too can forgive sins if, um, sins are found to be remaining that have not been absolved. Not to mention the point that you make, Dave, that it's often celebrated in conjunction with, uh, penance and, and holy uh, communion. So this isn't a ministry that priests can depute to someone else in an extraordinary form. This sacrament gives the faithful contact with Christ as our priest and shepherd. And I believe it's a proclamation of the gospel to those who are most vulnerable and weak, precisely for that reason. If we're facing death as a result of a serious illness, cancer, old age, what this sacrament reminds us of is that Jesus doesn't abandon us when we are weak and sick and alone. The fact that the priest comes to us uh, and ministers to us is a reminder that he, the Lord is there journeying with us and we have not been abandoned. And that's such an important point.
0: Yeah. Oh, that is awesome. What about, um? you open up the book with uh, basically pre-Christian attitudes towards death. I was wondering if you could kind of summarize some of that with us today.
2: Yeah. One of the arcs of the book is, you know, even the title of the book, from St. Paul to die is gain. Mm -hmm. That uh, attitude is really foreign Mm -hmm. to all of us today. Right. We wouldn't even dare say that. Like we say, boy, that, he must've been weird to think that. And uh, I, I quote a section from Plato's apology where Socrates is facing his own death Uh, simply to point out to readers, he ends, he ends the dialogue Socrates by saying, you know, I go to my death and you go to your life. Um, which is better? And he actually says this as a pagan. He, he he says it rhetorically. Which is better? Only God will know. And I I find it to be shocking that you have a a pagan 350 years before Christ at least open to the possibility that life after death is better than life uh, the the life that we have right now. And and so I I, sh- I share that at the beginning of the book just to show how far uh, Western civilization has drifted both from its Judeo-Christian patrimony, but even from the wisdom tradition of, of, of the Greeks. Uh, now we not only will, you know, we won't even talk about death, let alone uh, ponder openly with our friends that it could be actually better than what we have in the here and now.
0: Mm. Man, it is that our attitude of death. I remember um, when I started researching and apologetics for the resurrection, one of the things that constantly came up was, well, they're, 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 you know, ancient people. They're idiots they are easily fooled. You know, that chronological snobbery that uh, people tend to have today about, about the biblical authors and whatnot. And I said, let me just say. Yeah, they were ignorant about cosmological sciences. But of all things ancient peoples knew better than us was death. It wasn't sanitized behind behind hospital curtains or in beautiful hospices where people, you know, it was all around them. Grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, children died in the home with you. You knew it. You were with them at every step of the process. It, dead bodies were on sides of roads after battles like these things, you know, there's this funny line in the, in the old Testament where it said, uh, it was talking about King David with the adultery with Bathsheba. And it says, um, it was the springtime when Kings, when armies go out to war and it was like, yeah, you can march. It's not muddy. And then you go kill each other. Right. Like, like it was just such a part of life. And for us, it's not. It's been, thankfully, thankfully, through medicine and uh, antibiotics and all this stuff, much of what it was like in 1924 president, the sitting president's son died of an infection he got playing tennis at the White House barefoot. Like that would never happen today to anyone in the U.S. And this guy died from a foot infection, right? From a scrape on his foot. So we've conquered so much. But then it's the we've we're terrified of death. We're terrified of meeting God in judgment, and we're terrified of, of this life ending. And I and I, I can't help but be struck with what you're saying in how we've bent the sacrament to our will in the point of like, it, it might be that creeping universal and, uh, universalism of, because uh, the church emphasizes so much, good Lord, I'm going to get to a point here, of uh, perseverance, final perseverance as an act of divine grace. You know, in addition to initial justification and sanctification throughout our whole life, there is this thing of final perseverance that the church emphasizes. And I don't, I don't think I've ever heard that, like anyone ever talk of that, but like death is terrifying to a culture that worships health. As Nietzsche said, you kill God, all you'll have is a cult of health, right? And if we worship health and we worship this life, we'll even make the sacraments conform to that. I don't know.
2: No, I think you're you're onto something important. I, I have a couple thoughts about what you said. Uh, one is that uh, I, I referenced it earlier, and I develop it a little bit in the book. We have really turned the gospel message of healing into uh, conflated it with the idea of technological cures. So that is one big problem. You have a headache, you take aspirin, you know, the headache goes away. But the gospel message is so much more profound than that. We are healed so deeply that we get to love God for all eternity, not just get healed from some particular illness. Uh, So we have got to push back against what I call in the book, the cure mentality. The other thing that 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 um, the other point that comes to mind that I take up in the book is that because we have banished God and radicalized freedom which you see in the abortion discussions today, certainly in the transgender uh, discussions there, you know, there is no check anymore on uh, human appetites and ego. We should be able to do whatever we want. And Joseph Ratzinger points out that that uh, extends in the modern mentality to death. So we Cannot stand it when things happen to us, whether, you know, whether it's a crisis pregnancy or whether, uh, you know, a a man thinks he should be a woman or a woman thinks she should be a man. And the same is true with death. Therefore, we use technology to control results as opposed to from a providential mentality, trusting that God uh, is 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 ordering you know ordering everything so if you can't stand accepting god's will and allowing things to happen to us then death becomes something that you either push to the side and never talk about or in the cases of assisted suicide and euthanasia you try to control it yourself yeah oh, that is great
0: well uh thank you so much for spending time uh with us today uh dr roger you uh You've really broken this up into a a deep dive scholarly, but it's still accessible to the ordinary Catholic. If you love your faith, these are the types of things that you need to be acquiring for yourself and reading through and do and giving them to your your clergy, especially your priests, because like the sacramental life of the church is meant to prepare us to receive Christ for all eternity. An eternity begun now in the sacrament of baptism, uh, a beautiful communion that we have in the Holy Eucharist, but also to prepare us in final perseverance to face God in death. Like that is is so instrumental to our our accompaniment, right, to evangelizing people, right, is to prepare them to have good deaths. And uh, I always do that prayer at the end of the night with my kids uh may the Lord grant you a restful night and a peaceful death. And at first it creeped them out. (laughs) It's like, you want me to die? I'm like, no, well sometimes, but no, but the idea at its core is like, we're going somewhere a hundred percent. Uh, you know, if, if everyone ever brought into existence equals X, X is also the number of people who will die. And so we, we need to be ready to meet our Lord. Right. And, uh, this book helps us to understand from the inside out how to prepare to meet Christ.
1: Awesome. Roger, anything else you want to mention before we go?
2: No, uh, you just, um, people should, uh, desire this sacrament. One of the initial points of feedback that I've received from the book from priests is they've said, no one calls anymore, you know, Catholic nurses, Catholic doctors, families, um, um, that, the culture of priests, you know, two or three times a week or whatever, being called to the hospital in the middle of the night uh, to to administer the sacrament is gone. So this should be a gift that we want for our loved ones or or ourselves. And I encourage your listeners to to view it that way and and renew it, uh, you know, renew their their love for this sacrament. And and the last thing is that I do not in any way want people to think I'm encouraging foolhardiness Mm -hmm. Uh, death is still sad. And when someone dies, it's okay to be sad because we're deprived of their presence in our families or we're deprived of their friendship. Uh, So, so uh, I do not want people to say that. I'm, you know, want people to think I'm being reckless or I'm saying we should be cavalier about death. It's sad But the the wonderful news is that it's redeemed. So a lot of times when we wrestle with evil and the problem of evil, we use the fact of evil as a trump card. But it would only be a trump card if the Lord didn't have an answer to it. And the amazing thing about our faith is that death has been redeemed. We're not redeemed from having to die, but we are redeemed from eternal loss by the Lord. And that's wonderful news.
1: Yeah. Great news. The book is published. Once again, the, the title is to die is gain a theological reintroduction to the sacrament of anointing of the sick published by Emmaus academic. And uh, you should go and buy it, especially if you're a DRE, a priest, it is a, a perfect little uh tome on this topic. And especially because I'm in the acknowledgements, Gomer. So that's one reason all of our listeners should definitely go and buy it. So I'm specifically uh. named there.
2: I was so, wondering uh, if he was going to slip that in. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. I slipped it in. Roger. <laughs> thanks so much for joining us. Uh, as always, if you have any questions, email us at EKSB at com. We have our break coming up soon, but Gomer and I will be working hard recording actually in person. We're going to come. Yeah. Together. We're going to
0: record in person in July. I'm coming to you. Dave. Also, everyone text 33777 in order to get on our email newsletter. So you'll be alerted whenever we're coming up uh, with the new shows, new content. We are doing deeper dives into the church's teaching on evangelization, mission, discipleship, all that good stuff. So uh, stay tuned. We are not going away. We are just getting better. God bless y'all.